0: It is time to head out into the deep, dark and dangerous Devon countryside to see what ingredients we can find as we are rapidly approaching the final brew day. There's still a lot to do, but if we can gather up everything we need, then we are one big step closer to that foraged, self-sufficient ale come the end of the year. I'm Ben Richards, and this is Growing Beer. back friend to this the fourth and penultimate episode of the series for this year. As I record we're back in lockdown here in the UK but luckily this episode doesn't need any long journeys as we are getting ready for that final brew and pulling together the ingredients that we'll need be they grown, foraged or brought back to life from suspended animation like a very low-budget sci-fi movie. A quick recap first though, so far we've found out about how beer or ale has been brewed over time We've explored the two main wild or traditional sources of sugar for brewing, that is honey and barley, and we've found out a little about what my options are for a primitive brew if I'm only able to depend on the ingredients and equipment I can find or grow around me. Now, I expect you'll remember the raw ale I talked about at the end of episode three. Well, after three days of staying up and keeping the log burner going, we did end up with a raw ale to add to our mead on the list of successful trials. It was only a test so I was using modern equipment, but it came out as expected, and it is possible to keep a warm, fermenting yeast bubbling away using the simplest of domestic heat sources. My wife would argue it's not worth getting just a 6 hours sleep in three days, and, while she might be right, that's not the point. Now, if you remember, a raw ale is unboiled, and this one was just barley, water, and that yeast. The finished brew came out a very rich, bright amber colour, absolutely not clear and with practically no carbonation or fizz but the flavour was as expected all coming from the malted barley and very earthy and bready. It was nothing like a modern pale ale or bitter with a much fuller body due to all those proteins that haven't been knocked out of suspension as they would do if we had a boil stage. I am very excited to see what happens when we add in the sweet floral notes of the honey and balance it off with the bitterness of the wild plants that I'll be collecting over the summer. I very briefly mentioned the yeast I was using in the last episode and, of course, this also played a role in the raw ale too. I used a rather funky little yeast called Kvike, K-V-E-I-K, which are a group of relatively recently discovered farmhouse strains that come from the regions in and around Scandinavia. Now, I say discovered, the local folk have been using them for centuries and they know exactly what it is, but it hadn't been used or really known about outside Northern Europe. I've never really played with Kvike before this year, but the stuff is awesome. You see, most modern commercial ale yeast here in the UK needs a good seven or so days at about 20 degrees centigrade to make an average strength beer. And if you try to do it faster or hotter, you usually end up creating lots of undesirable flavours that you really don't want in your beer. Kvike, though... I mean, I just made a 6% ale in under 3 days at almost 40 degrees centigrade, and the only really noticeable flavour I could pick up from the yeast was a slight orange aroma, nothing else. Now, the second really cool thing about Kvike, and the reason that I'm experimenting with it, is that some strains are so hardy they can be dried out and reused, which means that it's totally possible for anybody to maintain a culture. You can keep a slurry in a jar in the fridge, scoop out some of the yeast and let it dry into flakes, or even... Use a beer stick, like Graham mentioned in episode 3. This reusability and the way it ferments hot and fast all feel right for what we're trying to do. It just fits the methods and ingredients available to us as we try to make this ale with the most primitive and local of ingredients and equipment. The only problem with using Fike, though is that it's not local to me and my immediate area. All of the strains that have been found in the past few years have come from those farmhouse brewers in northern Europe and Scandinavia. Yeasts that have been passed down and around for centuries, shared and isolated for longer than people can remember. The reason that I'm going to use a Kvike is I reckon that before domestic English farmhouse brewing died out, I suspect we would have been doing the same thing, using our own personal or local strains of yeast, just as they still do in those few places up north. I've already found out from the last series that getting hold of a wild culture of yeast is possible, but it is tricky. So I'm going to use a Kvike strain, but I'm going to do it like I would have done if I still had a local culture of farmhouse yeast here in Devon, which leads me to the second part of my test. In the earliest hours of the morning, whilst the ale was bubbling away, I was whittling and drilling myself a yeast stick. I boiled my now very holy stick, tied some twine around the top, and once it had cooled, I dipped it into my fiercely fermenting ale and then let it dry by the fireplace. I also scooped out and dried some of the froth as well. This is what I'm going to use in my final brew. My own God is good on my own magic stick. So we know that the process is technically possible, you can make a raw ale by the fire, keeping it warm enough to ferment properly, as long as, of course, my yeast stick does its job and I can stay awake for another three days. The next challenge is to get those all-important ingredients. The original aim of this series was to forage and find all of the ingredients myself. The arrival of Covid, however, changed this a little and... Whilst I'll still be exploring those wild options, I decided to also look at self-sufficiency rather than just foraging. With this in mind, I did plant some barley. I had some grains left over from the previous year's harvest, so I used those just as those earliest farmers would have done and sewed them up on my allotment. And, you know, compared to the first series, it was actually a pretty straightforward, successful process. No freak weather, no storms, no cows or pheasants terrorising my crop. So when it got to late July my daughter and I did a repeat of the first year and together we harvested and then hand threshed the grains before leaving them in a warm corner of the house to sit for a few weeks until it was time to brew. Now just because I was growing the grain didn't mean that I wasn't also trying to find a wild alternative to domesticated barley. After a bit of researching and exploring all around me over those many weeks of the initial lockdown here in the UK I came across a small variety called wall or mouse barley. It's edible it grows in and around bare ground, and whilst not the same as modern two-row barley that we find grown in farms all over the world, it does grow in ears, on the end of stalks, and it goes from green to a lovely straw yellow colour as it ripens. If you're from the UK, or another country that has this, you may remember it as a seed that you could pluck and throw at your mates. It was pointed at the end, arrow-shaped due to the long ends of the ears, and weighted well enough so that when thrown like a dart, it would stick into the clothing of whoever you threw it at. If you did that kind of thing, of course. So I decided that this was the answer and that as the summer progressed I would collect as much of this as possible whenever I was out and about on a walk. This is when I started to realise all of the many reasons why nobody else uses wild barley in their brewing. Reason number one. Modern barley has been bred for the qualities that make it easy to grow and then harvest all at the same time. Wild barley Does not make it easy. Wall barley does not care about me, my needs, or how much time I have to spend on collecting it. Rather than ripening all at once, not only do different plants in the same area all ripen at different times, but the different grains on the same plant do as well. I know what you're thinking. Ben, why don't you just wait until they're all ripe and then pick them? Well, as wall barley ripens from the top down, the top ripe grains start to fall off, so you end up losing them. This meant that every week throughout the summer, I had to head out and pick the top ripe grains from the plants. Not only is this quite tedious, but it is also not very effective if quantity is what you're after. And huh, whilst we're talking about quantity, reason two why wall barley is not easy is grain size. Just like Marion's description of the earliest barley found in Britain being no bigger than that of a grain of rice, that's pretty much the same size as wool barley. And reason three, even after you spent more time collecting it than you thought possible for such a small weight of grains, you can't separate them from all the chaff, the unwanted bits, like you can modern barley. Because the seed is so small and light, the only way I could split them out was to pick them apart one by one, hours upon hours upon hours, sat there picking the grain out of the ears. And even after all of this work, I would say at least 10 or 12 hours collecting, another 10 or 12 sorting and separating it, I've got less than a bowlful. My six-year-old eats a greater quantity of breakfast cereal in the morning than I have got from weeks and weeks of collecting. And I don't even know if it'll malt yet, so it's quite possible I spent all of this time for a grain that will do nothing when I need it to. Anyway, what we have discovered though is that it is absolutely possible to collect barley from the wild. But, and this is a pretty big but, For roughly the same amount of time spent on sowing, growing and harvesting, I have about a hundred times the amount of modern barley. I'm very sure I'm not doing it as well as you can, and I expect there are probably better varieties of wild barley out there, I mean, including, I'm sure, the ones that the first farmers and brewers bought with them from the Middle East. But, my word, that beer would need to be very, very special if this was the only option available. Anyway. I've done it now, and next episode we'll find out how well it malts when I get to the final stages of this series. So, that means that the yeast and barley have been looked at in a bit more detail, which leaves water and whatever ingredients you're going to add to provide bitterness, flavour and preservative qualities. Now, water is the easy one. We talked about its properties and its effect on brewing in the first series, settling in the end on rainwater collected on the allotment. This time, I'm probably going to use spring water from a friend's farm, as I'm allowed to step off the plot this year. I won't do anything to it, no additives or treatments. I'll check with them how clean it is and whether it needs boiling first, but that would be about it, really. And even then, that boiling is just to be extra safe, and I will let it cool back down again, so I'm not relying on that heat for the brew. Which leaves us with whatever we need to add in that would probably have been displaced by hops hundreds of years ago. As Martin mentioned in episode one, hops came to our shores about 800 years ago and gradually became the dominant ingredient when it comes to bittering and preservation. One of the reasons why they took over as they did is that each little hop cone contains some pretty potent oils and acids which not only offer an array of aromas and flavours, but they also help to keep bacteria at bay help with head retention and they offer up bitterness to balance the sweetness coming from that barley or sugar sauce. They are so good at all of this it is no surprise then that the majority of brewers shifted from ale to beer over the centuries since their introduction. In modern brewing we also know just how much variety in flavour and aroma there is in hops too. Anybody who has drunk hopped forward beers from around the world We'll also know that their qualities vary based on where they are grown. They have a distinct terroir based on the soil, temperature and amount of sunlight of the climate they're in. So, hops are great. But people were brewing long before they arrived and had been using their own equivalents, likely found in the wild all around them. The use of hops also requires different equipment, as you have to boil the beer for a period of time to release those acids and oils, which means that with my primitive equipment, which we'll get onto in a bit, I'm going old school, really, really old school, and I'm going to rely on what I can find around me instead. Now, I'm not sure what it's been like in your corner of the globe, but here in the UK, by mid-spring, we were in full lockdown. No unnecessary journeys, no meeting people outside of your household, and pretty much no travelling unless to get food or medicine. This meant any advice and guidance on how to collect, prepare and use the wild plants would have to come from somebody I live with. Q, my long-suffering wife, Kerry. Not only does she have to hear me going on about beer all the time, she now has to actively take part in the podcast because she is an ecologist with a very impressive knowledge of local botany. She's also a seasoned forager and somebody who spends a considerable amount of her life collecting, processing, cooking and using the ingredients that grow all around us here in Devon. So we're out on a family walk, there's the two kids, the rather noisy dog, and my wife Gary. And I have bought the recording equipment, much to your horror, is that a fair word to use? Annoyance. (laughs) Annoyance. I've bought it with me, so you can hopefully talk me through some of the questions I've got about collecting wild plants, how to store and use them, and maybe even find some of the ones that were used traditionally in brewing. How does that sound? That sounds fine. Okay. You're not really in the chatty mood, are you? <laughs> so, the first question that I have got is which plants you're allowed to collect and how are you allowed to collect them?
1: You are allowed to collect wild plants from public footpaths, public highways, um, or if you've got the landowner's permission. You're allowed to collect flowers, leaves, berries... Um, but you're not allowed to dig up any plants without the landowner's permission and you shouldn't be digging up any plants that are rare of conservation value or illegally protected. So there's a certain set of plants that are um, legally protected under the Wildlife and Countryside Act, which you wouldn't be allowed to touch.
0: So if you're coming out to collect wild plants, you need to check that first and know what you're actually collecting in the first place.
1: If you want to do foraging, you should focus on learning to identify a few very common, easy-to-collect species And then you won't have any problems with identification and collecting the wrong thing.
0: And can you collect different parts of the plant at different times of the year?
1: So as a general rule of thumb, if you want to collect leaves, it's best to collect them before the flowers have come out. So usually in the early spring. After that, leaves tend to get quite bitter. So then plants generally flower in the summer. And if you want to collect um, roots or um, berries, that's probably in the autumn.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. Well onto the herbs that I'm actually after then. There's a few classics that come up again and again um, associated with uh, brewing Mm -hmm. and certainly uh, one or two that have been found in the really earlier ancient ancient brews. So if I give you a list can you tell me what my chances are of finding them around here? Sure. Okay well the first one and the main one is meadow sweet.
1: Yeah we've walked past some meadow sweet today it's something that's quite common Um, It's an interesting plant. It's got lots of medicinal qualities. It was the plant that salicylic acid was first isolated from, which is the active ingredient in aspirin, also found in willow trees and various other things. And you get the leaves in the spring. This would be a good time to collect the leaves. And then the flowers in the summer. Perfect. They have uh, frothy cream-coloured flowers that smell very strongly of honey. Uh, Alehoof? That's another name for ground ivy. We've also seen that today, so that's a lovely little purple um, downy kind of flower that grows along hedge banks.
0: And would you oh collect the leaves? Some. Oh, they're right there, is there? Yeah. Oh, just tucked in at the back. There you go. And would you collect the leaves Growing or it... the flower of that?
1: You collect the whole aerial parts, so flowers and leaves and stem.
0: Well, that's perfect. If every time I mention a plant now, you can spot it in the hedge right next to us. Okay, so that can how about nettles? Because there's lots of those yeah, around. Yeah, nettles are on the list.
1: Yeah, so there's loads of nettles around. Um, so with nettles, they're a great um, plant to forage. You get, they're really useful to make into soups. And well, I've fed you all sorts of nettles this year, haven't you I? You have, yeah. All sorts of different <laughs> things. But you want to collect them before the flowers form. Um, so these are still good now, but they won't be for much longer. Because once the flowers form, you get little crystals. So it's not just that it won't taste as nice. It's that it's not very good for you because you don't want that in your body.
0: Okay. And which bits do you collect? Is it all the leaves?
1: Well, for brewing, I guess you would collect all of the leaves. If you wanted to eat them, you'd just pinch the. Top four leaves off the top.
0: Okay, perfect. Next
1: Wearing one. gloves, obviously. <laughs> and what about cleavers? Because look that's growing right next to it as well. So cleavers got lots of different names. See if my children know any of the other names. Sticky weed! Sticky weed! Do you know another name for it as well? Sticky willy. Yeah, sticky willy is another one. Or goose grass. Um so this is the um the classic plant that you might know from your childhood that you threw on each other's backs and it sticks to you. So it's really, really easy to recognise.
0: And it grows in hedgerows all over the place.
1: Yeah, very, very common, easy to collect and very good for you. Okay. Oh, well, there's some burdock. Um, I believe burdock was used in brewing. You should know this.
0: Yeah, it was. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so
1: like um, dandelion and burdock, obviously, we yep. made it a drink. Um, so burdock has got these great big leaves that are quite furry on the oh, underside, yeah. silvery colour. Um, and with burdock you use the root, um, okay. so we wouldn't be able to use this because to dig it up you need the landowners permission
0: And we're on a public footpath
1: And we don't know who the landowner is So we'll have to leave that one
0: We'll have to leave that one, yeah, yeah But enough. if you
1: were going to do it you would probably want to dig it up in the autumn when the roots are nice and big And then you could chop it up, dry it out and use it in producing drinks Cool But along here, this is foxglove which superficially looks a bit like burdock because it's got furry leaves with a kind of silvery underside. Um, But this one is deadly poisonous. It's got a toxic compound in it, which is used in heart medicine, um, but you wouldn't want to be using that for brewing, for producing drinks, because you would poison yourself. So when you're doing um, foraging, you really need to know what you're identifying. You need to be 100% sure of your identification.
0: Well, that leads me on to one of the other questions that I had was how many of the plants that we can see in our hedgerows are actually dangerous.
1: There's only about half a dozen plants in the British Isles that will kill you, but some of those are very common, so we'll see some of them. Um, As well as foxglove, we'll probably see hemlock, which is deadly poisonous. But most plants are edible, or they're at least not toxic, they're not poisonous.
0: You know which the toxic ones are? Yes. And you know how to prepare them. (laughs) (laughs) I should be careful. Yeah, exactly, Ben. (laughs) On to the next one, bog myrtle.
1: Yeah, we're not going to find that here. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you say that quite definitely.
1: Well, there's no bogs, are there, Ben? <laughs> you need to go to Dartmoor if you want to get some of that.
0: Which we can't do at the moment. No. No. Okay, well look we'll at going down the list. Uh wood avens.
1: Um we might spot that. We spotted it earlier on. Um so wood avens is one where you use the root again and the root smells like cloves. So you would need permission to dig it up in the autumn and it's um it's not a big taproot, it's lots of little fibrous roots. So they need a good wash and then you can use them to brew with.
0: Mm -hmm. Yarrow.
1: Yarrow is very common again, yeah. We should be able to see that somewhere. So that's got very finely divided leaves and white flowers. A strong smell and something you shouldn't use if you're pregnant.
0: Okay, so there's quite a lot available at this time of the year and around here that I could crack on with brewing then?
1: Definitely, yes.
0: And once I've gone out and I've collected some, or dare I say we've gone out and collected some, how do i dry these so that i can use them when i need to brew rather than straight away
1: you'd want to give them a good wash first collect them on a sunny day then give them a good wash dry them out and then we've got a dehydrator at home which we can put them in
0: what if i'm brewing more in keeping with traditional methods and i don't have a dehydrator
1: well one good way of drying herbs is to um put them somewhere dark and hang them up to dry somewhere warm
0: Do I have to be careful with how much I take of these particular plants?
1: Well, with any foraging, you only want to collect things that are very common, very abundant. Obviously, we follow the forager's code, so you take one and you leave four behind. Leave one for other foragers, one for the plant to reproduce, one for the wild animals and one for luck.
0: Okay, I like that, that's nice. Well, thank you, Kerry. I think the children have behaved themselves amazingly well and kept quiet for long enough already, so uh, we'll leave it there. Considering how hands-on the process of foraging and identifying wild plants is, I'm still considering myself very lucky that the skills and advice I need to get and find all of those plants are right here in my own house. A big thank you to the lovely Kerry. She's put up with a lot over the past few years, as I've pratted about with various different brewing projects, so I am very grateful to her, and I promise that after this one is finished, I'll put the various parts of the house and garden back to how they were before I let the beer take over. Also, a quick apology to you for perhaps being a little dramatic at the start of the episode. The countryside in Devon is not deep, dark, nor dangerous. It is very pleasant and mild, with no aggressive animals and nothing more venomous than the odd hornet or adder. The weather rarely goes above 25 degrees or below minus 5, and you are never that far from a road of some kind. So, if, as a healthy adult, you do get into trouble in the Devonshire countryside, it is quite likely to be entirely your own fault. So... Armed with the skills needed to identify the plants I need, I set out regularly, hunting through the hedgerows near me whilst walking my dog. Several of the plants were available to collect as soon as I'd spoken to Kerry, so I was quite quickly able to gather a few bunches of nettles, cleavers, ground ivy and meadowsweet leaves. It was, however, too soon for the meadowsweet flowers and the yarrow, so I had to wait until a little later in the summer to get hold of these. Now... With regard to the weather, we've had a reasonably good summer here in Devon, so there was plenty of opportunity to gather up the different plants, and there was an abundance all around me, so it was easy to get a good amount of each. In another twist of fate, as if the world was making it quite clear to me that I wasn't allowed to use any modern technology for my foraged ale, my trusty dehydrator packed in a little while ago as well. A fairly serious problem for Kerry and her own herb collection and drying, but from my perspective, yet another nudge toward doing things the traditional way. Even if I'd wanted to dry them in a machine, I couldn't. So, as Kerry advised, I tied them in bundles and hung them up in a fairly dark corner of my house so they could spend the rest of the summer drying until I needed them. If you are planning on heading out to get your own wild forest ingredients, please don't forget to check the law where you live and make sure you know what you're after. I can see from the listener stats for this series that you guys are all over the place. Uh, Australia, Brazil, New Zealand, the US, Canada, Israel, Sweden to list a few. The names that Kerry and I have used for certain plants are those that are used here in the UK and may not necessarily match the equivalent plant that you have wherever you live. Now, I have decided, and I'm already getting a feeling that this may be a mistake, that if I'm really going to be self-sufficient, I should be able to brew the beer in my own equipment that I've made myself from materials I've found and gathered in the local environment, which just leaves us with the final preparation and malting of the grain the creation of all that equipment, the brew itself, and the final fermentation. Now, without giving too much away, I'll be spending the next week digging, carving, soaking, scraping, moulding, firing, rock hunting, and staying awake for another 72 hours. If all of that goes to plan, we'll have a successful brew in two weeks. There's a lot that can go wrong, though, and I genuinely don't know what's going to happen yet. Wish me luck, friend. I'll see you on the other side. Goodbye.